Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A very good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, and we've got a lot to talk about today. It is President's Day, so I want to take a few minutes uh, to talk about some of the forgotten Catholic connections to the White House. Now, I know all of us probably immediately flash on uh, JFK, first Catholic president, and the problems he had. But there are so many other delightful stories along the way, and they're told in a book by Jay Kopp called 150 People, Places, and Things You Never Knew Were Catholic. And I'll be drawing some of Jay's, from Jay's, some of Jay's material, but a lot of my own as well, talking about the forgotten Catholic connections to the White House. We're also going to be asking the question about the death of Alexei Navalny. Peter Conrad will be my guest. Navalny was the most outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin, and he died in prison in western Siberia. Russian authorities claimed that he fell unwell that morning and that paramedics did all they could to save his life. But given Putin's track record, there's much to be suspicious of and much we may never know. Uh, Peter... Uh, is an outstanding researcher. He's the Europe editor of the Sunday Times, and he's the, he's author of the um, really intriguing book, Who Lost Russia? So that's coming up uh, today as well. The second hour of today's program, our friend Steve Ray will be joining us. February is the month of the Holy Family. So uh, it's easy to forget in our devotions that they were a real family. Real people living in real times. They had all kinds of cultural limitations they had to deal with, right? How did Joseph spend his day at work? What did their home look like? Uh, you know, in what way did they, do they differ from the kind of, uh, elevated artistry that we see, uh, about the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph and baby Jesus? So Steve's gonna, uh, again lead us through a day in the life of the Holy Family. That's coming up in the second hour. But first, let's get today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, February 19th. It's the Feast of St. Conrad of Piacenza. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is accusing the Kremlin of hiding his body to try to cover up his murder. The vocal critic of President Vladimir Putin died in a Russian prison last week, and his family and lawyers have reportedly been denied access to his body. Navalny's widow, Yulia, said she believes officials are waiting for traces of poison to leave his body. Human rights groups say that more than 400 of Navalny's supporters have been arrested since his death. Pope Francis says Lent is an appropriate time to confront inner struggles. In his Sunday Angelus address, the Pope used Christ's journey through the desert in the Gospel of Mark 
as a metaphor for the struggles and temptations of Christians today. He said that Jesus was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Pope Francis followed by saying, We encounter wild beasts and angels in our own inner wilderness. Thousands turned out at a Texas megachurch over the weekend for the first Sunday service since a woman opened fire in the sanctuary with a rifle. Pastor Joel Osteen billed it as a special service of healing. The shooter, who had a history of mental illness, was killed, and her seven-year-old son remains in critical condition after being wounded by gunfire. And former President Trump is launching his own line of sneakers. Trump announced the launch on Saturday while attending SneakerCon in Philadelphia. He told the crowd he's wanted to do this for a long time and he thinks the shoes will be a big success. The line called Trump Sneakers is available for pre-order and features three pairs of sneakers ranging from $200 to $400. The announcement comes one day after Trump was ordered to pay $355 million in his New York civil fraud trial. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today is President's Day, and I thought it would be fun to look at the United States presidency and Catholics. Now, we all know about JFK. He was the first Catholic U.S. president in 1960, and uh, he was able to do what Al Smith, a fellow Catholic, couldn't do back in 1928. He was able to overcome a long history of anti-Catholicism in America and get elected president. I was nine years old when Kennedy ran against Nixon, and being Catholic, I tangled with my Protestant friends who actually thought Kennedy would be taking orders from the Pope. My response is what you might expect from a nine-year-old. That's stupid. I'm Catholic, and I don't take orders from the Pope. But it is interesting to go back with some of those memories, and I was no political prodigy at all, but kids were not so separated from their parents' political opinions as they seem to be today. I mean, I remember opinions about the Cuban Missile Crisis, the bomb shelter scare, the Kennedy assassination, the Mercury and Gemini astronauts. I remember almost nothing about the civil rights movement except that Martin Luther King Jr. was supposedly a troublemaker. That's about all I remember from that era. That would be my early adolescence. But back to the American presidency and Catholics. Jay Cop is the author of 150 People, Places, and Things You Never Knew Were Catholic. And he had a fun piece in the National Catholic Register looking at U.S. presidents and their connection to Catholicism. And I'll be drawing from some of the material in his book and sharing with you some of my own research as well. I'll start with a man who wasn't president, but who outlived four of the first five American presidents. He lived through the presidencies. Listen to this. He lived through the presidencies of George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, and finally died when Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, was into his first term. I'm speaking of Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Born 1737, died 1832. He was the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was the longest-lived signer. He didn't die until 56 years after signing. He was 94 years old. He's considered one of the founding fathers of the United States. 
And of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Carroll was considered the wealthiest and probably the best educated. He had a 17-year education under the Jesuits in France. He spoke five languages fluently. Charles Carroll of Carrollton helped American political leaders revise their opinion of Catholics. Prior to the Revolution, all Catholics were viewed as potential traitors, mortal enemies of the Republic. The idea of a French alliance was unthinkable to colonial America. But suddenly, in 1775, John Adams was describing Charles Carroll of Carrollton as a Roman Catholic, but an ardent patriot. And within a few years, there was a full-fledged alliance between the United States and two Catholic powers, France and Spain. Uh, Before becoming president, Thomas Jefferson had served as a diplomat in France, and he, while there, he enrolled his daughter, Martha, in a convent school. He thought a Catholic education was best for her. But when Martha decided she wanted to be a nun and planned to convert, no, he realized he was not so open-minded as he might have thought. He rode his carriage to the door of the abbey, whisked away Martha and his other daughter, Maria, and they never returned. Uh, The wife of John Quincy Adams, Louisa Catherine, was born in London to an Anglican family. She was taken to France by her father and educated in a convent. It is interesting how many uh, of America's political elites had daughters and sons, uh, especially daughters, educated in elite Catholic institutions. Uh, But unlike the the, the French girls there, the wealthy French girls, Louisa Catherine hated balls, hated dancing. Instead, she spent hours on end at Mass, or in the chapel in silent adoration. When she was brought back to England, she was forced to attend an Anglican church. And the story goes that she fainted frequently during services and had to be carried out of the church. Now that's one story I'd like to know more about. Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, was a rough-cut populist, but brought Catholicism directly into the White House. Uh, Marianne Lewis was an engaging daughter of a supporter who fell in love with a Mr. Alphonse uh, Paget uh, at a White House Christmas party. So Jackson arranged the Catholic wedding at the White House on November 29th of 1832, Father William Matthews of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Washington did the honors. And a year later, the priest baptized their baby in the White House. You can see, all through this, people are beginning to engage with Catholics. And a lot of the, uh, at least among the more educated class, uh, the old superstitious imagery that they had uh, is, is disappearing. President John Taylor... Tyler, excuse me. President John Tyler is barely remembered. But his wife's conversion, decades after the presidency, left a deep impression on America. It was during the decade after the Civil War that her story became a national story. Julia Gardner Tyler, his second wife, had been a non-practicing Episcopalian for most of her life. But when she was hit with serious familial and financial troubles, not to mention living in a society recovering from civil war, she gave herself over to studying theology. 
trying to know God in the history of Catholicism. And she actually went on to be a Catholic in 1872. Jay Kopp, in the book, 150 People, Places, and Things You Never Knew Were Catholic, elaborates on this and points out that newspapers nationwide wrote of her unexpected conversion. And these stories were credited with easing the acceptance of Catholics. Tyler also became a flashpoint for women facing their own sea of troubles, uh, and they wrote to her, seeking guidance about Catholicism. She often responded with literature and pamphlets, personal letters, doing her own work of evangelization. Uh, She was careful to relate. This is an interesting little point. She was careful to relate that she had freely chosen Catholicism. No priest or nun had anything to do with my conversion, she wrote. It was simply from my own conviction of it being the best and truest religion as well as real Christianity, end quote. You can see she's pushing back against the idea that Catholics are, you know, kind of forced into it by parents, by authoritative religious teachers. Um, And so she's pushing back and saying, no, this was all my choice. No brainwashing here. James Garfield shared a room during the Civil War with a Major General William Rosecrans. Now, Rosecrans uh, is a devout Catholic, and he's one who shares his faith. He often had a priest uh, visit their home, their rooms, and even Garfield began attending Mass with Rosecrans, and even had the priest say Mass in his room. (laughs) Garfield wrote to his mother, I hope you're not alarmed about my becoming Catholic. You ought to be glad that I take the time to think and talk about religion at all. I have no doubt Catholics have been greatly slandered, end quote. But he was shot in 1881, an assassination attempt, and then he lingered on because of terrible medical care that he had. But he had an Irish Catholic maid who was close to him, and uh, she sprinkled holy water into his milk uh, before he died. An unusual little detail. During the administration of Calvin Coolidge, the Ku Klux Klan was regathering strength uh, in the 1920s. And they had a big parade marching in their white robes. And they invited President Coolidge to review them. You know, that he would be on the grandstand and they would parade past him. He refused. Coolidge wasn't going to review a parade of the Klan. He did something just the opposite. In a park just behind the White House lawn, he spoke to a large group of Catholic bishops and priests that were in the city for a conference. So he just, talk about a slap in the face. That was Calvin Coolidge, uh, again, showing his appreciation for the Catholic faith, not the Klan. Uh, President Eisenhower met with Pope John XXIII at the Vatican during a world tour in 1959. His wife, a Presbyterian, was sensitive to the spiritual needs of the Catholics who were on the White House staff. So between two rooms uh, of the White House kitchen, she had a plaque placed on the wall with a statue and prayer to the Blessed Mother. Unusual detail there. Uh, You can see more and more Catholics are Americans, and they're increasingly accepted. 
as part of the American you know, landscape. Ronald Reagan might have become a Catholic, uh, if not for a happenstance during his childhood. His dad was a church-going Irish Catholic. His mother was a church-going Protestant. Ronald's older brother, Neil, tagged along with their father to the Catholic Mass. Ronald Reagan attended the first Christian church with his mother. Um, his father's faith you know, remained a part of his life, and so he never developed a, a prejudice or bias against Catholics. In fact, Reagan was close to many Catholic religious leaders, and he had Catholic friends. After his recovery from being shot in 1981, he had a, a well, he started a remarkable friendship with Cardinal Terence Cook of New York, and the president's once confided to Cardinal Cook that he believed his recovery obligated him, obligated him to live for others. And Cardinal Cook replied, God was sitting on your shoulders. We've talked a lot on this program about Ronald Reagan's relationship with Pope John Paul II. Paul Kengor has written an outstanding book on it, A Pope and a President, and a second book called The Divine Plan. And there was mutual admiration and respect between the two. Reagan was eager to meet the Pope after watching footage of his return to Poland in 1979. And the President and the Pope shared similar goals of wanting to end the rule of the Soviets in the East, in Eastern Europe. Uh, in our lifetimes, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan shared something that very few people shared, and that is that they believed that they would see the collapse of the Soviet Union. When the Pope said that to Reagan, he said, we can work together. No one should ever have to choose between feeding their family and keeping their heat on. Impossible questions like rent or diapers demand answers every day, likely in your very own neighborhood, but you can help. Hope Clinic partners with you to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. While others face impossible choices, your choice is an easy one. Partner with Hope Clinic today. Find out how at www.thehopeclinic.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, Weekdays on Ave Maria Radio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York. 
flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. Weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. What is the value of Jesus' hidden life in Nazareth? The Catholic Catechism points out that during most of his life, Jesus lived as the majority of humanity, in simplicity and without evident greatness, a life of manual labor, a career as a carpenter. Jesus' obedience to his earthly parents fulfills the fourth commandment perfectly and forms a temporal image of his obedience to his heavenly Father. Through this obedience, he already began his work of restoring the damage done by Adam's disobedience. This humble period also binds us to Jesus in the ordinary events of our lives. The school of Nazareth teaches us three things, the value of silence, the value of family life, and the value of work. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from idle gossip. Feast on purposeful silence. Fast from words that pollute. Feast on words that purify. Fast from discontent. Feast on gratitude. Fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And good afternoon, I'm Al Crusta. There are two cases before the Texas Supreme Court, Cox versus Texas and Zorowski versus Texas, and they demonstrate the need for states with limits on abortion to either clarify or expand state statutes to protect children with fetal abnormalities from targeted termination. My guest is Rachel Roth Altizer. She writes from North Carolina where she's a disability advocate and mom to four kids, one of whom is profoundly disabled. Her work on disability policy has appeared in numerous publications, including World Magazine, The American Conservative, and The Federalist. Rachel, thank you for joining me. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Al. Let's talk about uh, these two cases. Um, what, can, what do you make of them? Well, as you said, I am a mom, and mostly a concerned constituent. So I'm just sitting at home sort of watching these cases unfold. I'm not a professional. I'm not an attorney. But um, sort of just like any other mom in America, 
and sort of watching the drama of this unfold and thinking how these cases might apply to my own life. Mm-hmm. And I think um, abortion advocates use emotions to make facts appear different than they are. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading about this case, I was struck to find, specifically in Cox versus Texas, and these cases are connected, but the facts that we were hearing from mainstream media are not the facts represented in the case. Hmm. And I think that um, even just today, I was flipping through Slate magazine called Kate, Kate Cox's pregnancy, where she's pregnant with a child diagnosed with trisomy 18. She, Slate magazine called that a non-pregnancy. Wow. So there's a lot of confusion in the mainstream media, purposeful confusion around the facts of these cases. And so it's just a concerned parent. I started digging into this myself and actually read the court documents. And what I was shocked to discover was the entire premise of this case, Cox versus Texas, rested on the fact that Kate Cox's physicians alleged that her continuing a pregnancy with a disabled child was a threat on her life. Yet, her own testimony demonstrated that she was not concerned over her own life, but wanted to distance herself from the pain of bearing a disabled child. And that is the crux of this case. So she's seeking an abortion to terminate the life of a disabled child diagnosed with trisomy 18. Trisomy 18. Wow. But... If you look closely, her, the, the case was built around the fact that this should fall under a medical exemption for the life of the mother. Yeah. Yet, yeah. Kate, yet her health was never at risk. And you'll see that in her own testimony. I have the quote here. I'll just read a bit of this. Yeah, please do. This is, yeah, this is her own testimony, Ms. Cox. I do not want to put my body through the risks of continuing this pregnancy. I do not want to continue until my baby dies in my belly or I have to deliver a stillborn baby or one where life will be measured in hours or days full of medical tubes and machinery. I do not want to watch my baby arrive in this world only to suffer. So in her own testimony right here, she's not saying she's concerned for her life, Right. right? And that is sort of the semantic game that these abortion advocates are playing, the Center for Reproductive Rights. So her representation, Molly DeWayne, is also represents this other case before the Texas Supreme Court, Zorowski versus Texas. So these are connected. Now, what's complicated about the other case, Zorowski versus Texas, is that there's some question to if those plaintiffs have standing. None of them are currently pregnant. This is where Katie Cox became really helpful. At the appropriate moment in time, they needed a woman who could currently litigate her right to an abortion while pregnant in the state of Texas. And so they sort of looped this case in. Same representation, same doctors, same plaintiffs. These are connected. And so what I sort of, in looking through this, what I sort of argue is if if Katie Cox's life was really at risk, then she should have been rushed to the hospital as soon as they thought that her life could have been in danger, yeah, right? Right. And her doc, her doctor had, 
there's a medical, there's an exemption in the state of Texas for medical emergencies. They could use that, but there was no medical emergency. Well, the, wouldn't the, the courts see through this? So I think the Texas Supreme Court did. They ruled against Katie Cox. She traveled out of state to procure an abortion. Mm -hmm. But I think this is what I am really concerned about and trying to sort of raise the alarm on the advocacy side for pro-life advocates is that we should anticipate that abortion advocates will try to equate fetal abnormalities with a maternal health risk. Wow. Wow. So basically saying that if you're carrying a disabled child, as Slate Magazine called it, that, that to them is considered a non-pregnancy. Yeah. Complete, complete negation of that, the life that's there. Absolutely. Because in their, in their words, that's, um, in the plaintiff's document in Cox versus Texas states that uh, the state of Texas cannot demand that a pregnant person sacrifice Notice they say person, not woman. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice their life, fertility, or health for any reason, let alone in service of an unborn life, particularly where pregnancy is not likely to result in the birth of a living child with sustained life. So those are two different things, right? Living child and then their qualifying sustained life. And that's just not true. The state of Texas doesn't require that a woman die right? There is medical exemption. Right. There is a possibility for a woman who's suffering an acute medical condition to procure an abortion to save her life. But that was not the case here. Katie Cox was not in danger. She was just carrying a disabled child. Yeah. And so someone who threatened her comfort, not her life. Absolutely. And threatens. So the sort of typical risk. So one of the things that came up in this case was that she had had two previous C-sections. And the only risk that they cited was the threat of a third C-section. Well, that's typical risk, right? Because she would have assumed that risk had her child been born as a normal right. child right. with a C-section anyway. But suddenly, the typical risks of pregnancy became untenable because the, because the object of that pregnancy was abnormal. Now, and so, go, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just think that, that that sort of has really far-reaching implications for how we think about disabled people. If they don't fall within the scope of what we see as normal, then sort of the things that we're willing to take on, like parenting, suddenly become untenable, right? right. So Katie Cox only wants to parent normal children that fall within her range of normal, yeah. which is incredibly dehumanizing to this whole other type of child who needs her mothering, yeah, right? That yeah. little baby that she's pregnant with, with trisomy 18, unfortunately, who now, you know, now she's had an abortion. That child needs her as a mother, just like her other children do. Yeah. She is no less in need of parenting because she's disabled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in this case, of course, the, the child is damaged goods. It's not what I bargained right. for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so our sort of our concept of parenting has really changed to where we're only willing to take on, like, quote, the risks, I guess, of pregnancy if the outcome is perfect, right? If it's sort of this perfect ending. But that's just not the reality of life. Yeah. Now, let me, let me you, you've written a piece for Public Discourse where you lead off by saying, my son is blind, immobile, nonverbal, and hearing, hearing impaired, 
with multiple brain abnormalities and complex orofacial birth defects. And then you ask the question, is he disabled? Which then you go on to talk about the changing language surrounding disability. Yeah, so I I wrote this piece, and again, just to tie back to the earlier case, I found out that my son would have a really complicated set of birth defects at 17 weeks gestation. So we weren't sure if my son David would survive to be born at all. Perhaps he would be stillborn, die in the womb. And then when we when he was born, we were told he would die immediately. He lit, he um, after 16 days in the NICU, we discharged. And they told us to prepare for him to die overnight at home. But David is remarkable. He is um, very profoundly impaired. He does, like I said, or like you read, he is blind. He has a G-tube. He's hearing impaired. He's non-mobile. He's non-verbal. But that's not a statement on the value of David's life, right? That's a statement about logistics. Those are some logistic statements about how David interacts with the world. But that's not a statement on David's value or worth as a human being. So that's why this Kate Cox, this Katie Cox case was super compelling for me because I saw a mother arguing the, the woman vested, the only person who could be the true advocate for this little child was arguing for its death, essentially. So then to pull it back, um, you know, when when my son was born, we first applied for uh, Medicaid. I live in the state of North Carolina, and there's a particular waiver since we are over the income limit for Medicaid that my son could qualify for to help with things like therapy, medical bills, food supplies, things like that. Sure. Well, we were actually denied Medicaid. Um, uh, on what first. grounds? Because they said that my son fit the state's definition of medical fragility, but because he had a two-parent household, that the experience of his disability was lessened. So basically, because I, as a mother, was doing my job and taking care of David, and he's part of a nuclear family, that the effects of his disability are therefore lessened. That's just discrimination. That's, that is, that's weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting, and it's part of a semantic shift. Yeah, saying that um, not, they're, not, they're not looking at they, they're trying to determine David's subjective state. Social. You know, and uh, yeah, this is going to create all kinds of policy headaches down the road. Changing definitions of disability like this. Yes, and what we're seeing is that disability is becoming a bit of um, an idea an identity for some people in the sense where it becomes a voluntary thing that people are saying, I'm identifying as a disabled person. Hmm. And yeah, it's good that there's more visibility to disability, but I think people with really profound disabilities like my son sort of risk falling by the wayside and losing access to essential services. Uh, Rachel, thank you. I'd like to have you back where we can talk about this uh, changing language about disability. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. Rachel Roth-Altheiser. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, 
They donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. The question of gender identity is divisive, controversial, and often painful. How should parents respond to sons and daughters desiring to change their gender? Will the church remain free to teach that we are created male and female? What do the sciences say? We'll find out on March 2nd when Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio host our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Attorney John Bursch takes on gender ideology. Professor of Endocrinology Dr. Paul Cruz covers the sciences. Father Sean Kilcauley speaks as a pastor. And you will bring plenty of questions for our panel. Be there Saturday morning, March 2nd, from 8.15 until noon at Father Gable Richard High in Ann Arbor. The event is free, includes a light breakfast, so register at AveMariaRadio.net or FGRHS.org. Greetings, brothers in Christ. I'm Bishop Earl Boyer, inviting you to the Accept the Challenge Catholic Men's Conference on March 16th at the Gervin Game Above Center in Ypsilanti. We've lined up incredible nationally renowned speakers, Justin Fatika, Doug Berry, and our very own Father Joe Krupp. There will also be Mass, Confessions, and a wide variety of Catholic ministries to help you grow as a man of God. Visit acceptthechallenge.org to register today. This week on Christ is the Answer, it's the season of Lent, and Father John wants to help us prepare for Easter. It's only been about a week into Lent, but have you stuck to your goals of fasting and prayer? Or have you hit that spiritual roadblock? It's not too late. The church has so many faithful ways for us to traverse this season of penance. So if you need encouragement, join us again this week as Father John helps us get the most out of Lent. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Have you ever thought about what you want written on your gravestone? We think about how we want others on earth to remember us, but perhaps our focus should be how God sees us. How we communicate in life impacts the conversations we'll have with God in death. Will we be remembered as bold communicators? I've been bold and sometimes outright aggressive in my talk, but without holiness, the boldness can come off as berating. Without holiness in our hearts, how can good commentary pass through our lips? How we speak can equate to how we live. I wrote about my dad's funeral shortly after he died in 2002. He didn't die a rich man or a famous man, but he died a good man. A faithful man, one ready to meet God the Father. His faith is what I remember most. In life, my dad communicated kindness and love. That kindness and love will always be remembered by those who knew him well. This has been a Christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Denhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Peter Conradi. He's the Europe editor of the Sunday Times and author of Who Lost Russia? From the Collapse of the USSR to Putin's War on Ukraine. You can follow him on Twitter at Peter uh, underscore Conradi, C-O-N-R-A-D-I. Peter, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Uh, we're here to discuss the death of Alexei Navalny. What do we actually know at this time about his death? Well, I think what we know is that the official version of his death is full of holes, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were led to believe by the Russian authorities was that he died at uh, 17 minutes past two local time um, at the Harp uh, labor camp up in the Arctic Circle in Russia last Friday. Uh, now, that already looked suspicious because that was the time that was given as his official time of death. A mere two minutes after that, the prison service put out a press release saying that he died. Now, bear in mind, this is a Remote prison camp 1,200 miles from Moscow. Um, And they managed to put out a press release two minutes after he died. Two minutes after that, there was a a, a plausible cause of death was given, that he'd had some kind of blood clot to the brain. And another five or six minutes after that, uh, Vladimir Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, was already talking about it to the media. So I think what is very clear is that this official version does not stand up. Um, and that uh, this is underlined by the fact that in the days since, his mother, his elderly mother, who travelled up there to see his body, has been denied access to the body. So, you know, what we know is he very clearly died last week. Um, he was seen on video on the day before, um, Thursday the afternoon. Um, so, in a sense... Something happened between his testimony and 2.17 on Friday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What kind of reaction are we seeing uh, from the the media there? I mean, is this being reported on, or is it just very much, uh, you know, kind of a rip-and-read type of reporting? Yeah, it's a kind of a, a blink and you've missed it kind of reporting, which I think is, 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 is the same thing. I mean, the, the fact that his death was, I think, reported, it took less than a minute for the report on Russian television on Friday afternoon. Um, I mean, there's been a, a, a curious thing that when Navalny was alive, Vladimir Putin could never quite bring himself to say his name, uh, which seems kind of bizarre. It's a little bit like if anyone's read a Harry Potter book and no one can say the name of the evil Voldemort. It's the same thing as far as, uh, as, far as uh, Putin was concerned. And even, you know, even in death, the Russian, official Russian media have avoided giving him his name as he's just sort of the prisoner. Um, wow. so, I mean, extraordinary. I mean, you know, notwithstanding that, everyone in Russia, almost everyone in Russia knows exactly knows he's died, knows the significance of it, but of them, only a very, very brave few have actually protested against it. Some of them have gone out and laid 
flowers, uh, some of whom have then been arrested, others have uh, you know, tried to post messages or, or whatever. But it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to oppose the regime in, in contemporary Russia. Had, had uh, uh, Navalny, Navalny continued his uh, criticism of the Kremlin, uh, you know, uh, even while he was imprisoned? Well, yes, he, he certainly had. I mean, he was, he, I mean, to, to remind your listeners, I mean, he survived a poisoning attempt in 2020. He was sort of traveling through Siberia. He went to Germany for treatment, spent several months being treated there. He then decided to return to Russia at the beginning of 2021, uh, was jailed almost immediately went through a variety of different kind of remand prisons and then to, to the labor camp, had more and more years added to his sentence. You know, but throughout that uh, three, just over three years between then and his, his death last week, he was still very much from his jail cell managing to smuggle out messages um, to, I mean, he couldn't record the videos with which he made his name in, in, in earlier years, obviously, because he was in a in a jail, but he was still making his presence felt. He was still there as a thorn in, in Putin's side. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly there was a desire on the part of the Kremlin to eliminate him. Uh, it, what kind of resistance to Putin survives uh, in Russia? I mean, if Navalny was the, you know, the chief competitor... Uh, to Putin, uh, what happens now? Is there any focal point for resistance to the regime? Well, I think what is, let's say that the the tragedy of Russia, uh, or Russia's recent history, is the extent to which one by one challenges to Putin have been eliminated. eliminated. They've disappeared. They've been killed. So the, the only other figure, I think, with anything like the stature of Navalny was uh, a former minister called Boris Nemtsov. He was shot as he was walking near the Kremlin uh, back in 2015. So, first he went, now Navalny's gone. There is no obvious figure to replace him, sadly. Except, you know, all eyes are now turning to his widow, Yulia Navalnaya, who made a very dramatic intervention at the weekend at the Munich Security Conference where Kamala Harris and a number of other statesmen, women from, from across the Western world were present. She was, you know, she just happened to be there as her husband's death was announced. Um, but subsequently, she has made a video which was posted on, on Navalny's YouTube channel today in which she said that basically she is going to continue his life's work. She said Putin killed Navalny because he couldn't break him, he couldn't silence him, um, but I'm going to take off, I'm going to take over from abroad, obviously not from within Russia, where he left off. Now, if she manages to do that, if she manages to galvanize the opposition, that could be quite dramatic indeed, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a big struggle because all the instruments of repression of the, of the Russian state are available, and she obviously is not going to go back to Russia. She's going to be doing it from exile. Yeah, yeah, that makes it makes it more difficult. Um, 
to generate uh, a following when you're really not not in in the country. But uh, so this is the reason I I dealing with this because Putin has successfully squashed all resistance uh, at this point. Why would he care any longer about Navalny? I mean, he's got him up there in Siberia. Um, who knows when we're ever going to hear from him again. Did he think that Navalny had an active following that was a threat to him in some way? Well, you see, you, I think you, you put your finger on, on, on the real question, because you know, the idea that, that Putin would want to be rid of him you know, is it, 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 clear. But why would he, you know, if there is a theory that somehow he ordered his killing at precisely this moment, it, I mean, to me, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. And why does it make sense? Because, A, you know, he, Navalny was there, he was a, you know, a threatening presence to Putin, but he was, you know, he was safely locked away in Siberia, and, and sort of support is not dwindling, certainly wasn't, Rising. Right. Um, there are elections coming up in almost exactly a month's time in Russia. Putin is definitely going to win the election. He always, he always will do. He's concerned about turnout. He's concerned about percentages he wins by. So, in a sense, Navalny's death will galvanize the opposition um, in a way that, had he still been alive, it would be difficult to see that happening. Right. Um, we also have, you know, if you look at the situation in, in, in your own country, in the U.S., with the sort of aid for military aid, the, the aid package for Ukraine kind of at the moment between the Senate and the House, again, this, you know, killing uh, an opposition opponent is, is not a great way of, uh, of, you know, of stopping that aid package being, being passed. I mean, it, it's almost like... You know, draws comparisons with the, the, the Saudi killing of Khashoggi right, uh, a right. couple of so years ago. So uh, it seems it, it seems it seems counterproductive. And one thing I know we have to finish in a second, but I mean one intriguing thing is that in this YouTube broadcast that his widow made, she said that she knows quote exactly why Putin killed Alexei three days ago, and she said that the team of people around him would reveal more in the near future. So there was clearly something, or she's given the impression there was something planned, something that they were going to come out with, and that, you know, maybe it sounds a little too far-fetched that Putin struck first. Hmm. Uh, well, it'd be fascinating to see what comes. Did you, did you see, and I've not had a chance to read the translation, but apparently there are... Uh, there were letters between Navalny and uh, Nathan Sharansky uh, in March and April of last year. And I was just wondering if there's anything significant here for us to be aware of. I mean, I saw, I, I, I certainly read the uh, a very good piece in the New York Times, uh, which is maybe where you, where you saw that, where they, they look at a whole number of, of letters that... Uh, amazingly, Navalny managed to smuggle out or have smuggled out of his prison cell. And I mean, I think that they, they paint a fascinating portrait of someone who was, 
I'm essentially really prepared to die as yeah. a martyr yeah. and you know, knew, I think he realized his fate. And, uh, you know, I would recommend anyone who, to, anyone who's interested to read, to read that piece if they have access to it, because it, it just gives an extraordinary insight into the mind and the life of uh, an extraordinary man. Peter, thank you. Uh, wonderful talking with you again. And uh, we'll have to have you back sometime soon to talk about Ukraine. So thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'd love to. Peter Conradi is the author of Who Lost Russia? From the Collapse of the USSR to Putin's War on Ukraine. It is, uh, again, outstanding book. Uh, recommend it to you. And, again, gives you a narrative, right, a story uh, about the development there, which you can uh, helps make sense of all the details that are popping up uh, all around us. This Navalny's letters from the Gulag to the former Soviet dissident Nathan Sharansky is uh, are fascinating. Um, you may remember that Nathan Sharansky, along with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, were two of the great heroes of the 20th century. And what we have is we have Sharansky uh, corresponding with Alexei Navalny, one of the great heroes of the 21st century. And Navalny through his lawyers, managed to get a Russian copy of Sharansky's famous memoir, Fear No Evil, and he, ate, he read it in the Gulag, where he was killed last Friday. We know this because he sent Sharansky two letters, one in March and one in April of last year. We'll have those in the Cresta Guest Archives for you to read. I'm Al Cresta. Join Father John Hedges for 5 p.m. Mass at Our Lady of Fatima Shrine in Riverview, Tuesday, February 20th, the feast day of Saints Jacinta and Francisco. Receive a plenary indulgence under church guidelines. Fellowship follows the Mass. Call 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. That's 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Modern philosophers Kierkegaard, Shelley, Sartre proposed the idea that existence precedes essence, by which they meant, in simpler terms, that in the process of time we make or create who and what we are. We understand, of course, that there are those who believe that their doing has been more successful than that of others, and have consequently argued that their being is on a higher state than that of others. This is the kind of thinking that leads to genocide, gas chambers and abortion clinics. However, folks like Barb and Patrick and Paul and Alicia believe that from the beginning human essence is divinely ordered and infinitely valuable, and where else can we state this more clearly than our defense of preborn children who cannot prove themselves or justify themselves. They can only be, which is why they are so precious to one named I Am. Go to Guadalupe Workers. Dot org. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for being with me this first hour. Uh, let me refer back to this correspondence between Nathan Sharansky and uh, uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, there are many things about th- this correspondence that's interesting. But uh, as, as has been pointed out um, by Barry Weiss's uh, substack, the Free Press, some things are just really amazing. They're erudition. Um, they, they, their scholarship is still important to them. Their biblical references. It, it is interesting that there are many uh, references to Scripture. Uh, in these, uh, in this back and forth, there's a strong sense of moral clarity. Uh, and then, uh, for instance, uh, in prison, I discovered that in addition to the law of universal gravitation of particles, there is also a law of universal gravitation of souls. That's what Sharansky writes. Um, and then he encourages. Navalny. By remaining a free person in prison, you, Alexei, influenced the souls of millions of people worldwide. Her humor is gallows humor, but it's notable.